0: Hello, and welcome to the Latter-day Saint Women podcast, where we share the legacy of women of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You'll get to know the faithful women who shaped our past and hear
1: from inspiring women of faith today. I'm Shaylin Back. And I'm Carly Guyman. We are your co-hosts. And today we are excited to have in studio Denise Posey lindberg Denise, welcome. We're glad Hi. that you're here. Thank you very much. You have a very unique background and journey, and we want our listeners to hear about that. Denise served on the Young Women General Board from 2014 to 2018 under um, President Bonnie Oscarson. And most recently, she and her husband completed a mission representing the church to the Organization of American States. This was a new organization for me, but a collaboration of countries in the Western Hemisphere. Denise was born in Cuba and lived in Puerto Rico and the United States as a young girl, and she joined the church in New York. We're excited to hear more about that story. And she has an extensive educational background, two master's degrees in educational psychology and social work, a PhD in health science, and a law degree from BYU. And following graduation from law school, Denise served as a law clerk for Monroe McKay of the United States Court of Appeals, and for Associate Justice Sandra Day O'Connor of the Supreme Court of the United States. And she's also a former district court judge of the 3rd Judicial District of Utah. Amazing. (laughs) So we're excited to hear more about these experiences and how this all came to be. Thank you for inviting me. This is
2: really an honor, and I appreciate the invitation.
1: Thank you. Mm -hmm. Denise, as we hinted at, you have a very unique story and a fascinating story, and we would love for you to share about your upbringing and, and what brought you to the United States and how you
2: found the church. Certainly. Thank you, and thank you for this invitation. As you mentioned, I was born in Havana, Cuba, and my early years were spent there. My father was Cuban. My mother was Puerto Rican. And on my father's side, my grandparents had emigrated to Cuba from Spain. My mother's family also hailed from Spain, but they had lived in Puerto Rico for many generations. My parents met and married in New York City shortly after the end of World War II. They settled in Havana, where my father had an import-export business. And shortly after we were born, my mother, who as Puerto Rican, had American citizenship, had the foresight to register my brother and me at the American embassy as American citizens born abroad. Uh, And she took some flack about that. It was like, why are you doing that? But she just felt that it was important, and Mm. time would prove her correct in that. (laughs) I have really happy memories of those years in Havana. I spent them in carefree play with my extended family, with my cousins. We had a comfortable upper-middle-class background, circumstances. And then came the Cuban Revolution, and everything changed. At the time Fidel Castro came to power, that was in January of 1959, My mom was working for the Hilton Hotel chain that had just opened the Havana Hilton. Prior to that, she had managed several small businesses. She had done some freelance work as a journalist, and she was an inveterate course taker. So she would, you know, take classes at the University of Havana. I'm not sure how she met Fidel in those years, but I assume that it was when they were both students at the University of Havana. But upon entering Havana after his triumphal march from eastern Cuba into the capital. Fidel chose the Havana Hilton as the headquarters for his first government, uh, the first seat of his government. And I assume that that's where he and my mother reconnected. In any event, within a matter of days, Fidel asked my mom if she would organize his introduction to the international press because of her journalism credentials. And she did, and the event was a success. And after that, she wound up working with Fidel. I'm not sure exactly what her title was. The press reports refer to her as an advisor on public relations. She didn't talk very much about those years after we left Cuba, but piecing together things from documents and photographs that she did manage to take out of Cuba, it seems pretty apparent to me that she worked closely with Fidel and with his inner circle I don't think it was very long. It was maybe three or four months. I do remember conversations at home in which she expressed concern with the direction that things were going in the government. And so she resigned uh, her position and returned to the Hilton. So despite those worries and political signals, our family fared reasonably well during that first year. In some ways, I think her having worked for the government kind of protected us. Things changed uh, the second year when she had a run-in with the Committee for the Defense of Revolution. Now, to give you a little background, every neighborhood was organized, these committees were organized, and their purpose was to ferret out people that were against the revolution. At the same time, there had been this uh, movement to express support for the revolution and for Fidel by having people put a plaque on their front door that said, Esta es tu casa, Fidel. This is your house, Fidel. Pretty soon, every house in the neighborhood had one of those except ours. So the CDR representatives came, wanted to know why we didn't have one. My mother effectively told them that she knew Fidel. She worked with Fidel. She liked Fidel. He'd been to our house, but this was her house, not Fidel's. Hmm. They left. A few weeks later, they came back. Actually, I'm not really sure what the timeline was, but it seemed like it wasn't that long. The upshot was that we were told that the three of us that were American citizens were undesirable aliens and we had three days to leave the country or be expelled. Wow. So other than the clothes we had on our backs and a small suitcase with some photographs and some documents, we couldn't take anything out of the country. Uh, My father, as a Cuban citizen, was not allowed out of the country. I remember him taking us to the airport and boarding a plane, and at that point I I was nine years old, nine and a half, I guess. I didn't know if, if at all I would see him again. Eight months later, after we left Cuba, my father suffered a massive stroke, and then he was finally allowed to leave the country. So he joined us in Puerto Rico. During our first few months in Puerto Rico, we lived with relatives, but soon my mom was able to find a good job, first as director of the faculty center at the University of Puerto Rico, and then later at uh, Inter-American University in San Juan. One of the benefits that she had from working at the University of Puerto Rico was that my brother and I were able to attend the model school that the university ran, which was probably one of the best schools in the island. Later, when she moved to San Germán, that helped financially the family, but the problem is that we didn't own a car, the roads were not good, and to travel from our apartment in Rio Pedros near San Juan to San Germán was about a four-hour drive in public transportation each way. So there was no way she could do that on a daily basis, on a commute basis. So the upshot was that she lived in San Germán, would come home on weekends. By this time, I'm 10 years old. My father's an invalid. My brother's a year younger than me. And so at that point, I assumed the responsibility for running the household. Oh, wow. And there's a lot more to the story, but basically those were very difficult years. And I had to grow up very fast. And pretty much that's when my childhood ended. I had to become a young adult. Three years later, in in 1963, things had again stabilized. My father's health had improved. So when we got word that a cousin of mine was getting married in Philadelphia, we decided that we could afford to go, so we went. It was a, a wonderful family reunion with my Cuban relatives. And it was really a joyful occasion. But within a matter of days, my father suffered another devastating stroke. And at that point, we were told that he was just too fragile to return to Puerto Rico. So he was in the hospital. We stayed with our relatives. My mother went back to Puerto Rico, sold the things that we had mattered to accumulate for over the three years that we had been there. And we had to start all over again. Through a childhood friend, uh, my mom was able to return to the Same position, actually, that she had held in the company when she had met my father. And they offered her a place to live in New York City. only glitch was that there was no room for my brother and me. So with my father shuttling between hospitals and nursing homes, my mother was living with her employer, basically. We were sent to live to the the upstate New York vacation home of this couple that owned this company. I had lived in the States for one year during my first grade. My parents had separated, and we had come to the States. So I had learned a little bit of English, but when we returned to Cuba in 57, that this was from 56 to 57, I promptly forgot everything that I had learned. So it was relearning English, uh, this time trying to do so apart from my family. And You were still so young. So it was, (laughs) again, another difficult year. But by 1964, we were able to come back together as a family. That was a good year for us. My mother's company had moved from New York City to New Rochelle, New York. So we got an apartment in New Rochelle. I transferred to New Rochelle High School and uh, my father was able to come and live with us again. I wanted to help my family. I thought that the easiest way to do that was to skip a grade, so to get out of the house as quickly as possible so that I wouldn't be a financial drain on the family. I was able to challenge some courses and skipped my sophomore year. Now it's 1965. I'm a senior. Just before my senior year, I decided to go visit the New York World's Fair. It had been running from 1964 to 1965. And I had read that the Pope was coming to visit the Vatican Pavilion. I wanted to see the Pope. I did not time that very well, so I wound up missing the Pope's visit by a few weeks. Oh no! But since I was already there, I decided that I was going to stay the day. And so I visited all the pavilions, had a wonderful time. And at the end of the day, I was tired. I was heading for an exit, and I saw this odd-looking building sort of near one of the exits that I was taking. And I became intrigued, so I went in, and that turned out to be the Mormon Pavilion. And the odd appearance of it was that it had been designed to look like the Salt Lake Temple, so with the spires and, Mm -hmm. and... so it intrigued me. I went in. I watched *Man Search for Happiness. I signed the guest book. And a couple of weeks later, two sister missionaries called and asked to know if I wanted to know more about the church. With my mom's okay, I invited them for dinner. And to make a long story short, within three months, myself and, and my entire family was baptized members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.
0: Oh, wow. From meeting the
2: missionaries at the World's Fair. <laughs> That's right. So my baptism totally changed the trajectory that I had planned for myself. Uh, Instead of applying to Cornell University, which is where I had wanted to go, I applied to BYU and was accepted. And so that next September, I started at BYU. Because I had skipped two grades, I was pretty young. I was 15 when I started at BYU, Mm -hmm. which was an interesting experience in and of itself. I couldn't date. (laughs) (laughs) Not that many people were asking me out at the time, anyway. But academically, I felt perfectly comfortable handling the, the equipment, but you know, socially, it was a real adjustment. In any event, I met my husband just before my senior year at BYU. He had just returned from serving a mission in the Andes South, a mission in Bolivia, Peru, and Chile. And we met in our BYU ward, and we were married uh, seven months later in the Los Angeles temple. Now, God put in my path the perfect man for me throughout our marriage. My husband, Neil, has unfailingly supported me in anything and everything I wanted to do. Our marriage has really been a true partnership. While the boys were little, and we have two sons, he and I took turns between working full-time, being at home with the kids, and going to graduate school. We all worked together, cleaning house, doing yard maintenance. We had our little routines Saturdays. I'd make homemade pizza at the end of the day after we had everything cleaned and we'd watch TV, we'd fold the day's laundry that had been washed, and we just did family things. But those are some of the happiest memories of my life.
0: And I love that you added that about your husband. I think that's really valuable to our listeners, whether they're single or married. I think they appreciate hearing that partnership and how you were practically able to make things work. I I like that. Denise, you served on the Young Women General Board from 2014 to 2018. What about your service was most meaningful for you, and how did it strengthen your belief in our value as daughters of God?
2: You know, it's really hard to say what of the many experiences was the most meaningful um, because each memory of those four years is precious to me. But maybe it would be helpful to start by giving a little background as to what board members do. Great. The purpose of general boards is to serve as a support, the general presidency that has called you. Uh, Historically, board members have served their presidencies by participating in committees, assisting in yearly training, hosting visitors, speaking at events like firesides or girls camps, visiting young women programs, and, and basically serving as the eyes and ears, extending the reach of the presidency by letting them know of our observations as we visit programs and as we engage with our young women. The boards generally meet with their respective presidencies on a regular basis, usually once or twice a month. And during that time, uh, we report on the work we are doing. We receive counsel and instruction. And we discuss whatever issues the presidency feels or has determined uh, could benefit from input from the board members.
0: Especially with the varied backgrounds that all of you have, that's really valuable.
2: Exactly. So each incoming general presidency decides what kind of board they feel inspired to call. When President Oscarson told us at our first meeting that uh, she and her counselors, sisters McConkie and Marriott, had spent a year thinking and praying about what kind of board they should call. In time, uh, the spirit confirmed to them and the senior brethren agreed that it was time for an international church to draw from women across the world to serve on the church's first international board. Now, to facilitate the work of general boards, it makes sense to have at least some of the members to be from the local area so that we can meet for a specific assignment. If something comes up at the last minute that needs to be covered, there's someone there that can step in immediately to do that. However, unlike in the past, by the time we were called, the church had available to it technology that made it possible for board members from across the world to meet, something that just hadn't been possible even five, ten years before. Ultimately, the presidency decided to call four of us from the local area, and the other five, we had a nine-member board initially, were sisters that lived in Japan, South Africa, Brazil, Peru, and then one sister from New York City who eventually wound up moving to Germany. And uh, so for the last two years, of our board service was in Germany. Our young women's boardroom has large screens, so whenever we met, we could see our sisters projected onto the screens. And they could see us and inter- you know, we could interact back and forth. Occasionally, there were the minor technical glitches, but by and large, we conducted all our committee work and our board meetings that way. There was the presidency and the four local board members sitting on one side of the table, and then across from us were the screens with all the other five on there. And it was fabulous. And now that's how things are in the exactly. midst of, of
0: COVID. But even people that are local are having to do that. And so it's just neat that that was already happening. Yeah, you know, can say we were the pigs for,
2: yeah. you know, something that had not been done before, but which COVID has now made more routine. Mm-hmm. And that is bringing people from wherever they are together to work at, at you know, virtually at a distance. And that's really brought so many opportunities and just
0: different perspectives to the service that we do. It's been incredible. Well, Denise, you and your husband recently completed your service in representing the church's full time missionaries to the Organization of American States. And we would just love to know a little bit more about that assignment, kind of what it entailed
2: and what made it meaningful for you. Well, my husband and I are both lawyers. We had always planned on serving a mission after we retired. And we knew couples that had served legal missions. And so we figured that with our Spanish language, and our legal training, that that would be a good fit for Mm -hmm. us.
1: Sure.
2: The church's associate general counsel, who has been there for many years, Bill Atkin, is a very close friend. He and my husband served in the same mission. Um, So we've known each other for 50-plus years. And so he asked us if we would be interested in an assignment, and we thought that we would be going to one of these associate area legal counsel somewhere in Latin America to go Mm -hmm. help out the full-time lawyers for the church. But The general counsel's office had approached the First Presidency and asked if they would create a position and authorize a position for a couple to serve at the Organization of American States. Now, why? For at least two decades, the church has had missionary couples who have acted as government relations representatives for the church or more typically for Latter-day Saint Charities, Mm -hmm. which is the humanitarian arm of the church, Mm -hmm. as you know. And it is recognized as a, an NGO, a 501c3 a nonprofit organization that has credentials at the UN and at the uh, European Union. Why the OAS and what is it? Most Americans really know very little about the OAS. But when you stop to think that close to 90% of the church's membership lives in the Western Hemisphere. Wow. Um, And the OAS is like the UN, but it is strictly the 35 nations in the Western Hemisphere. Of the 35 nations, 34 are members of the OAS. The only exception is Cuba, which got kicked out and then decided that when the OAS invited them back, they said, nah, never mind, we don't want to be part. Every country from Canada down to Argentina and Chile and all the Caribbean states are members of the OAS. And... The policy pronouncements of the OAS and the treaties that get negotiated, the policies that they advocate, play a significant role in influencing the direction of what Latin American governments do and Caribbean governments do. Even when you exclude the church members that live in Canada and the U.S., which is obviously a huge portion Mm -hmm. of our total church membership, it's still about half of the total membership of the church live south of the Texas border. That's incredible.
1: Yes, a huge percentage.
2: Even though we'd had a presence as a church indirectly through Latter-day Saint Charities in these multilateral organizations, in an organization that has such direct influence potentially over the lives of half of the members of the church, uh, we hadn't had a presence. That's why the Office of General Counsel wanted that position created and authorized, and we got to be the first ones called to that assignment. So our call letter from the First Presidency gave us some specific assignments, and I'm going to just cover these. First, to monitor the OAS programs, policies, and activities that could adversely affect the church and its members. We were asked to build relationships of trust and understanding with key OAS personnel and with the diplomatic corps. Mm -hmm. Third, we were asked to coordinate with other faith groups and other NGOs that shared similar concerns as we had. Fourth, we were asked to help protect the interests of the church and its members living in OAS countries by helping to implement priesthood-approved strategies for addressing concerns that may be raised by policies, and to help promote traditional values, actions that protect human rights, and in particular, religious freedom.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: It seems
0: like you had a lot of really unique assets that were perfect for this position. And I just love that they created it for you, you Mm -hmm. know, and really could use the strengths that you and your husband had to be beneficial to such a huge percentage of the church. It's
1: amazing. And both uniquely prepared to serve in this capacity. Mm -hmm. And, I think, too, you mentioned one of the priorities that the first presidency had asked you to keep an eye on, to monitor, was those issues of religious freedom that would affect so many members throughout these countries that are involved. And I think as members of the church, we hear often of how important religious freedom is, but it can sometimes be difficult, especially for those of us without a legal background <laughs> To really understand why it matters so much, and even in a global perspective, not just for us here that live in the United States. So we'd love for you to briefly help explain to an average member why they should care about this issue and why that was something the First Presidency felt was so important for you to care about as missionaries.
2: Well, in the United States, we have the blessing of the First Amendment and the freedoms that the Bill of Rights protects and gives us. But the reason we as a church, especially internationally, focus so much on religious freedom and rule of law projects is because those values are values that we care deeply about both as Americans and as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We must remember that many of the people who came to this country, to what became eventually the United States of America, came here searching for religious freedom. hmm And to escape persecution and the founding fathers remembered that and that's why they enshrined the free exercise of religion as the first freedom in the bill of rights and religious freedom is also the taproot from which spring all the other rights protected by the first amendment uh, freedom of speech freedom of assembly freedom of the press those are all fundamental to our democracy to our way of government and of course, to opening the doors to the gospel being reestablished and restored Mm -hmm. in the latter days. Mm -hmm. So that is fundamental now. As a society, unfortunately, too often these days, for religious freedom, is no longer valued as a fundamental constitutional right. Even when it gets acknowledged or lip service is paid to it, it is done sort of begrudgingly. It's like, okay, you can practice your faith in your churches or in your mosques or in your synagogues, mm. but keep your faith out of the public sphere. But to live a whole life, we really need to respect and protect the fundamental bedrock of what religious freedom involves. It's not just the right to practice in private, mm-hmm. it's the right for our churches to organize and the right for our churches to select their own leadership to develop their doctrine, to speak in both private and publicly Mm -hmm. about issues of moral impact. Mm -hmm. But that is begrudged these days. Whenever we have the opportunity to speak on behalf of what religious freedom really is, how broadly it appears, how much it encompasses the opportunity to not just live it privately, but to speak about it and to live it openly, we want to take every opportunity to talk about that. One of the great blessings that we had during our mission was that we got to travel pretty extensively throughout Latin America Mm -hmm. and speak about religious freedom. That's neat. Mm -hmm.
0: You know, hearing you talk about your experience now... I'd love to know more from you. How can especially women feel more confident in seeking and following the guidance of the Spirit in their own lives, especially in decisions about careers and education, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, when you have families and you have children, Mm -hmm. um, we'd love to know what you would say to them to feel more confident
2: in seeking and making these decisions. Yeah. President Nelson and other church leaders keep reminding us that we need to learn how to receive inspiration. Mm -hmm. And once we receive it, we need to learn to trust it.
1: That's kind of part two, part one, learn how to receive it,
2: part two. And I know how difficult that can be. I've never considered myself particularly faith-filled. I'm not one that regularly feels impressions of the Spirit. In my case, it's more like Heavenly Father has to take a two-by-four and hit me between the eyes (laughs) and say, this is what I want you to do now. Mm -hmm. And really, the biggest decisions in my life have been exactly that. Heavenly Father sort of stepping in in such an obvious way that I just simply could not ignore it or deny it. Hmm. But when that inspiration comes and you know it, and the Holy Ghost bear witness to your soul that that guidance is true for you, then there comes a peace with that. And yes, there are times that we question it or go back and say, wait a minute, you know, things aren't working out quite exactly. Or this is a lot harder than I was planning or or, anticipating. Or I'm away from doing other things that I, you know, being caring for my children or doing other things my neighbors are doing. And so we question those impressions. I think back when um, Oliver Cowdery had prayed and the Lord said, cast your mind back to the time when you were pondering this and didn't I speak peace to your soul? So when that peace comes, we have to remember that. We have to cast back to that when things get difficult. And then the other scriptural injunction that I like to remember when it comes to that is, Mm -hmm. look unto me in every thought, doubt not, fear not. And sometimes it's easy to be afraid. But if the Lord is guiding you and the Holy Spirit has confirmed that, then it will work out and we have to trust. But I think we need to be gentle with each other. We need to be caring and supportive. I had a wonderful group of neighbors. You know, we would go walking in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know, In my neighborhood, the average family size was six or seven. We had a couple of 13-kid families. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then there were our two boys. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you that that felt awkward at times. Mm-hmm. There were some health issues for why. But that was really nobody else's business. Right. right. It was my brother, my husband and me and the Lord. Mm-hmm. And we reached a time and a place where we felt that that was what our family was. Mm-hmm. But the women that I walked with every morning never judged me. Now, other people did, but <laughs> my, my, <laughs> but not my sisters friends. that yeah. I walked with never did. Oh, I love that. And when I was struggling in law school, when I was thinking, oh, I just blew that test. They were the ones that pick me up and walk with me and encourage me. Their gentleness, their caring, that's something we need and we owe each other. Mm -hmm.
0: I love that to be Mm -hmm. gentle. We owe it to be gentle with one another because we all have such different circumstances and so many different experiences that lead us to make the decisions that we do. And if we're just supportive and gentle and understanding and not Mm -hmm. judgmental, it really goes a long way.
2: There is no easy way to be a woman. We all have multiple things that pull at us. So there's always going to be guilt at whatever choice we make. I mean, I have friends that chose a very traditional, you know, be a homemaker, mother, and focus your attention there. And then have talked with them about their guilt about not pursuing an education and maybe that they don't feel as able to help their children. Hmm. Working mothers always carry the guilt of, am I going to damage my children because I'm not there 100% of the time? Mm -hmm. You know, that's life. I think Heavenly Father is a lot more forgiving and a lot more sympathetic and a lot more supportive than we are with ourselves. And so we just have to stop, hearken back to what we know, and then let that guilt and discouragement try to drop it. Mm -hmm. Those feelings come from Satan. Those feelings don't come from God. He said that the purpose of life is to have joy. So when there's the discouragement, then we need to fight that. Mm-hmm. Those are fiery darts, you know, <laughs> that assail our peace of mind. Some years ago, I gave a talk at BYU a Women's Conference, and I used a little message that my mother-in-law had put on a bulletin board in her house. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read that. It has it has helped me. So this is called Satan's Auction. We don't know who wrote it. It's anonymous. But it says, Once upon a time, Satan announced that he was thinking of retiring from business and would offer his diabolical inventions for sale to anyone who would pay the price. On a day of sale, the tools were all attractively displayed despite the ugliness of each of them malice, hatred, jealousy, sensuality, deceit, and all the other instrumentalities of evil. Each was marked with price. Apart from the rest lay a plain wedged shaped tool, much worn and priced higher than any of the others. Someone asked Satan what it was. That's discouragement, was the reply. Well, why have you priced such a simple tool so highly? Because, Satan replied, it is more useful to me than any of the others. Hmm. I can pry open and get inside a man's consciousness with that tool when I could not get near him or her with any of the others. And once inside, I can use her in whatever way suits me best. It is much worn because I have used it on nearly everybody, and yet few, very few, know that it belongs to me. (laughs) And it so happened that Satan's price for discouragement was so high that it did not sell. He still owns it, and he's still using it. So let's not give a place in our soul to he who would destroy our peace
1: What I really appreciate from what you shared there is that the feelings of discouragement or sadness or guilt that we feel when perhaps we're pursuing something that we feel guided to do does not discount that revelation that we received. Mm -hmm. Because I think sometimes we can confuse that. You know, if we're wanting to pursue something in our families or in our home that we aren't able to do at the moment because we're wearing one of our many hats, as Sister Jones has taught, sometimes I think we think that sadness and guilt is the spirit. And I just love that this explanation is no, go back and remember what we've been guided to do. And don't let discouragement let you turn away from what you're pursuing. That is a good thing that the Spirit has led us to do. We just so appreciate everything that you've shared with us today, from your
0: childhood and your family situation to all of these opportunities that you've had and just different things that you've pursued. I think a lot of our listeners will be able to relate to a lot of these feelings that you've had. In conclusion, is there anything more that you'd like to share with the women of the church and the listeners of this podcast? This has been a difficult year
2: for for most of us. But I can testify from my own experience that the defining experiences in our lives, those that are of most worth, usually come from our hardest times. Sometimes it feels like at each turn of the road there's another stumbling block. But with the perspective of time, we can see that even when it all feels like things are going wrong, the hand of the Lord is at work in our lives. And we really can't forget that. So back to my little story about Satan's tools let's not get discouraged. It says in Joshua, be of a good courage and soldier on and trust that it will all come out well in the end because we know what the plan is and we know who wins in the end and we're all part of God's plan. So we just help one another and we try to be patient with each other and we try to be kind. I really love that. So to our listeners, thank
1: you for tuning in to this episode of the Latter-day Saint Women podcast, and we hope you enjoyed as much as we did this conversation with Denise and learned so much from you. And we love hearing from our listeners and we take your feedback to heart. So if there is a topic you would like to hear addressed or a guest you'd love to hear from, feel free to contact us at podcast at churchofjesuschrist.org with your feedback or ideas. We also just want
0: to let you know that this podcast is available just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. It's on the church's website and also on the Saints Channel mobile app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, anywhere. So check them out, subscribe, and please share with your friends and
1: family. Until next time, I'm Shaylin back. And I'm Carly Guymon. Thanks for listening.